Kia ora, I'm Emile Donovan, and today on The Detail, the government's long-standing promise to rebalance immigration is kicking off. It has the delicate task of filling skills shortages while also keeping up with infrastructure development and keeping as many people as possible in well-paid employment. But the international labour market is running red-hot, and there's an uncomfortable question front of mind. Just imagine you were a skilled worker in another country looking to move somewhere else right now. Why would you choose New Zealand? Today on the podcast, the New Zealand Herald's business editor-in-chief, Liam Dan, on the economic benefits and drawbacks of large-scale immigration, how Aotearoa has responded to the complications posed by COVID, what shape our labour market's actually in, and what the seemingly constant stream of carve-outs and exceptions to our immigration policy says about how we're approaching the mid-term future. At a simple level, um, more people in an economy means more activity, more growth, more GDP, and so you go back to the um, years sort of uh, from about uh, 2011 through to the, the right, even to, all the way to the onset of the pandemic, and um, New Zealand ran really high net migration gains, record high net migration gains. Official figures show a seasonally adjusted net gain of 6,100 people in the month of March, taking the annual gain to a fresh record of 71,900. And got called a rock star economy and all sorts of things because it saw really good growth. Their economy grew at the high end of expectations in the quarter, advancing by 0.7%. While annual growth was up 3.5%, the highest in seven years. The flip side is that, uh, you know, GDP is a nice number to have growing, but um, that per capita uh, GDP is, is, is our personal wealth, and that didn't grow as much, although people make the case that there are flow-on effects. Also, if you've got a lot more people coming into the economy, you need to be investing in infrastructure, building more houses, your roads are getting filled up. And so um, that has to happen. And I guess you could make the case that it didn't happen fast enough. We certainly ended up with a with a housing shortage for, for, for many different reasons, but um, immigration may have been a, you know, a factor there. A new report says that Aotearoa New Zealand can't sustain pre-COVID rates of immigration because we don't have the housing and other infrastructure to properly support and settle new migrants. So it's kind of a, a push and a pull factor on the economy. On the one hand, it's driving growth, driving activity. You sort of want to see that in positive territory. Um, but on the other hand, there are costs around you know, having to cater to more people in the economy. So, I mean, is a useful analogy maybe that like relying heavily on immigration to, to maintain or boost economic growth is kind of like relying heavily on sugar to maintain or boost your energy levels? Yeah, sure. I mean, I'm not sure that you're necessarily going to crash afterwards, but you have to kind of, it's a question of balance, right? So Mm. it does sort of turbocharge growth, um, but it's not the sort of, I guess what you're getting at is that wholesome uh, wholesome kind of energy and growth that you want in an economy or in, in, in your dietary intake, I guess, in this metaphor, um, is, is going to be uh, yeah, productivity, um, each individual generating more activity. And so real wealth creation comes from, um, you know, doing more on a per capita basis and creating real wealth. And that's that productivity equation that um, economists and a lot of politicians worry about in this country. Mm-hmm. 
I'm pleased that you brought up that point in around sort of 2011, that post-GFC period. I mean, was that a deliberate policy that we kind of had? You know, the world economy is in absolute disarray. This is a way that we can arrest the decline that, that many other Western countries are sort of are feeling in this moment? Or was it more a happy coincidence or, or consequence of liberal immigration policy? Um, I, I think a bit of both. I don't think um, the John Key government said, this is how we're fixing the economy. Mm. Um, but at the same time, there were fair winds there. New Zealand had sort of stepped up in terms of its visibility in the world. And you can go back to Lord of the Rings and, and, and tourism booming and all sorts of things were happening that made New Zealand a desirable place. Welcome aboard this Air Middle Earth flight. Before we set out on our journey, I would like to impart a story of safety. And the immigration settings were favourable, and it really does, it it helped drive growth along. So I think as a population, um, we went with it. There was debate, but um, until it got to a, a real situation with the housing shortage. New property figures show that the average selling price for a three-bedroom home in the old Auckland city boundaries has soared over $1 million. The rate of growth in Auckland's housing market is now into the double digits. Property values in the rest of the country are growing by less than 5%. Prime Minister John Key warned late last year that galloping house prices could cause a housing crisis. But this morning he told me that's not the situation yet. I think um, uh, it didn't didn't really come to a head, that debate. I think we, we were happy, especially after the GFC that we'd been through to see it drive some momentum and it is a, it is in my view a uh, a switch that New Zealand has and is lucky to have in that we live in a in a we believe a great part of the world and that's um, a draw card and it gives us some flexibility when when uh, economic circumstances change to allow more or less people in or fewer people in so when did the tide start to shift on immigration? Was it a situation where net immigration was so high for such a long period of time that eventually the pressures on infrastructure became sort of unavoidable and at that stage our politicians were like, OK, something's going to change here? Sort of. I mean, there's an even flow. We got to net, net gain of about 70,000 a year or so. It's above 60,000 a year at one point. And, of course, the Labour Party, particularly when, when Andrew Little was in charge, was focused on addressing that. Accusations of race-baiting are swirling around Labour's immigration policy. Despite a direct effort to distance itself from such claims, Labour wants to cut the number of new immigrants by up to 30,000 a year by tightening the rules around student and work visas. Both the ACT Party and United Future say it's a blatant pitch towards populism. And we had a you know, coalition with Winston Peters and New Zealand First, and they are really... They wouldn't like the term anti-immigration, but they're, they're, they're into very much stricter, tougher immigration rules. So they came in, but they really weren't able to change that overnight. It, it drifted off. It probably was always going to drift off those highs just as a cyclical thing. But despite the policy to reset, there wasn't much change until um, really uh, much closer. You know, we, we really hadn't changed much when the pandemic hit. And then, of course, it was kind of a, a black and white, boom, borders closed like we'd never seen before. The country had a net migration gain of just 6,600 people, compared with a little under 92,000 people in the previous year. On an annual basis, it's the lowest numbers for migrant arrivals since 1986. One of the main benefits of uh, immigration is addressing what you might describe as, well, what you do describe as the skills shortage that we have in New Zealand. What do we mean by that term, the skills shortage? I mean, it seems self-explanatory, but like, how would you define it? 
when you talk about skills, you think very high skilled. So New Zealand is a small economy. We're probably always going to need to find brain surgeons and, um, you know, computer engineers and, and, and software developers and so on from around the world to, to fill gaps if we want to have a thriving, innovative economy. So that that makes sense and that's skilled. But then, you know, that definition can be stretched mm. and um, that probably is a political definition. So in the construction industry, uh, the people who do the tiling that often come from like Cambodia and Southeast Asia, are they skilled workers? Do you stretch that to horticultural workers who might be much faster at, at um, picking kiwi fruit than the New Zealand workers? You know, I, I guess I guess at some point you go, well, are we talking about skilled workers or unskilled workers? And that's where Labour has sort of um, looked at policy and, and tried to shift things a bit. Because, of course, the flip side and the flip argument is always going to be, if especially if we have unemployed people or people who aren't thriving in New Zealand, why can't we, uh, you know, upskill them, you mm-hmm. know, better education? personal development, all that stuff to, to meet some of those needs. Well, yeah, because, I mean, like, you talk in your column from earlier this month a lot about the skills shortage, it, but it made me wonder, you know, at this point in time, does New Zealand have a more acute skills shortage than we have in the past or compared to other countries around the world? Like, is this an unusually severe time that we are in when it comes to, to this slightly nebulous kind of area? Yeah, it, it definitely is, and the pandemic has done that. Uh, and, and so right across the, I guess you call the developed world, the nations that are our peers, so... Australia, Canada, UK, US, and, and, and some of the European nations, those uh, developed economies were kind of thriving and relying on immigrant labour. Uh, so, so workers from poorer places coming in basically to do jobs that their own people wouldn't do or wouldn't do for that price. And COVID really, um, you know, it was, it was the reboot of the computer. You know, everything was turned off. Now it's coming back, but it's coming back quite slowly. Every one of these countries I mentioned has uh, a labour skills shortage um, going on that you read about in the media and, and things. The federal government says addressing the country's crippling skills shortage will be high on the agenda at next month's job summit. The pandemic has forced closures and modifications at restaurants and stores and a labour shortage the likes of which employers have never seen before. There is a shortage of skilled tradespeople throughout the U.S. economy, a persistent problem that started well before the pandemic. And they're all competing for the most important workers, the immediate, you know, the, the really high skilled workers, doctors and all that sort of stuff coming from more developing economies. So, yeah, it, it definitely is really acute. I'm, I'm not sort of, you know, I hear a lot from business groups. I work with business groups. I, I do get the argument that, hang on, you know, are we actually, um, if there's a supply and demand curve, are you, are you just not paying enough to get Kiwis to turn up and um, and all the rest of it? But, you know, when you look at just how low unemployment is. The unemployment rate has stayed around its record low at 3.3% for the June quarter, according to Stats NZ. You kind of do get to a point, you know, without getting into a debate about the social structural reasons for it, but there are, there is a sort of a, a level of poverty that exists in the country where there are some people who are not work ready. And that's, that is a, a sad fact, one we should address, but you know, once you get uh, unemployment gets down to that sort of 3% of the working age population, you are starting to hit that that difficult territory. So this is where we're at. We have really low unemployment, high wage growth, even higher inflation, and big skills shortages in certain areas. 
and the government also has its philosophy, inherited from the pre-pandemic years, to cut immigration to levels lower than we saw throughout most of the 2010s, as it feels some businesses and industries had become too reliant on cheap overseas labour. So, in May of this year, a swathe of policies described as the immigration rebalance were announced by the then immigration minister, Chris Farfoy. People in New Zealand who want to hire migrants will need to pay them the median wage. That's more than $27 an hour, rather than the minimum wage of $21.20 an hour. Pathways to residency have been streamlined for some workers. A green list of highly skilled in-demand jobs was written up, and migrants working in these roles could get residency immediately. Things like geotechnical engineers and GPs and psychiatrists and ICT managers and so on. Another list was also drawn up. Migrants who could apply for residency after two years. This includes teachers and nurses and midwives and diesel mechanics. Some industries which rely heavily on overseas workers, for example hospitality and tourism operators, have a bit more wage flexibility, but they do still have to offer overseas workers a minimum of $25 an hour. There's some thinking around it which has been done by a guy called Peter Wilson and, and his colleague at um, NZIR that um, constant stream of, of, of unskilled workers coming into a country will undermine your productivity because... Um, uh, and not to pick on the, I won't pick on one particular horticulture, but but you know if, if people are still picking fruit with ladders because the workers are so cheap that, that the employers have never had to invest in sort of robotic picking machines that that they have in Europe and things, then you're not getting uh, as much value out of the industry as you could. You're, you're relying on that cheap labour rather than driving up productivity mm. and wages. So it's a kind of a, a pulling up the wages by, by putting a bit of a squeeze on uh, on businesses to have to deal with the um, labour problems they have without just uh, having a guaranteed supply of the cheapest workers in the world. In theory, a, a, a total reset, just switch, closing the borders, which was absolutely unthinkable, of course, but um, does provide a platform for resetting the policy and could have been useful if, it, if inflation hadn't become such a problem. I mean, they are effectively squeezing employers a bit, but the trouble is that it's got so acute, um, it goes beyond just worrying about whether, you know, the, the, the stress levels of employers and whether they can pay more and so on. It, it really is starting to embed into that wider inflation problem, which affects us all. So I guess and the, the other thing is, um, unfortunately, everyone in the, of our competing sort of developed nations uh, in that global labour market all had the reset at the same time. Mm. So suddenly it, it becomes a much tough, tougher competition and there's a pull factor too, you know, so Kiwi workers um, heading off to Australia or, or further afield if there is opportunity to earn higher wages. Just to clarify that I understand, it, the, the thinking here is sort of, we choose through our immigration settings who we allow to live here and to work here and to become residents and to become citizens. And, I mean, it feels weird to talk about people in this way, you know, but, like, there are different categories of uh, immigrants to New Zealand, in a sense. You know, there are some who are yeah. very desirable, doctors and looking at the skills shortage list, you know, quantity surveyors and food technologists and whatever. But then there are migrants who might be willing to work for less money than a New Zealander would in a certain role or who might not have a good understanding of their rights under New Zealand employment law, who might be exploited by an employer. And 
our immigration reset is kind of saying we want more workers from that first category and fewer workers from that second category. Yeah, and I guess the thinking is, you know, if we've got people who are struggling to, to find a place in the world in New Zealand, uh, getting them at least up to speed to do some of those more basic jobs at a reasonable wage is a goal rather than constantly bringing in, in workers and not having the motivation there. I guess the employers would argue that they're kind of the meat in the sandwich there, mm. that, you know, that this is a, uh, even if it's an admirable initiative, in the short term, they face the squeeze. The onus is on them to wear the costs and, you know, to invest in the technology. And look, that, that's a kind of, um, I don't think the government would, well, the government wouldn't put this explicitly, but they are a Labour government. They're left-leaning. They feel that the businesses can afford to soak up a bit of that. or that, Well, they certainly did feel that up until <laughs> the last few weeks when I, I think they have started listening to things because they're aware um, how acute the problem is around around the pandemic reopening. You write in your column that you think the government has got it wrong on immigration and that while there is obviously merits to reining in unbridled immigration and relying on it in the ways that we've talked about before, maybe it's just it's not the right time to do a full-on sort of reset like this. There are so many unknowns and we're competing on a really competitive sort of global market. Have I, have I sort of, have I got your, your meaning right yeah, there? Yeah, that's right. Although I would say what happened was I wrote that column on a Friday for Sunday and went out Sunday morning and by Sunday afternoon, <laughs> nothing to do with my column. <laughs> but but they, they the government had, and Michael Wood, the immigration minister, um, had announced a, a fairly pragmatic suite of, of changes. Now the government will allow some sex to pay skilled migrant workers less than the new median wage requirements in a bid to address workplace shortages across the country. It's also doubling the working holiday scheme cap for 2022-23 and extending holidaymakers' visas. To sort of recognise the acute problem. So while they are holding on to the, the larger the, the policy vision, they are sort of undermining it here and there or, or just recognising that, that they can't um, hold the line completely and uh, have opened up the number of workers for various sectors which they deem to be under the most uh, you know, international labour pressure. That They're recognising that this is an international problem and that we need workers in the, in the short term. So that they've kind of, they kind of have um, made some steps. And now I think, well, OK, they're probably not going to change the big picture policy. They've made some pragmatic changes the real issue from here is executing what is what is on the table, like like making sure that immigration New Zealand can cope, applications aren't delayed, um, and I guess we're on our way to what could be a workable median. I know employer groups uh, welcomed those changes, but then they also uh, worried about doing more to make New Zealand attractive to the to most skilled immigrants. Mm things like the path to residency, you know, so you go from a, a, a short-term worker visa to could you end up becoming a resident and bringing your family here? How difficult is that? Um, if Canada's making it easier, then you might not get the, the skilled worker in the software industry. The, the, they might go to Canada. So there's that sort of other bigger picture stuff too. If we go back to the idea of this immigration reset, you know, one of the big things there was looking at sort of the median wage and pegging immigration to this median wage. But earlier this week, Michael Wood announced more exemptions to that idea, right? Like in construction and aged care and so on and so forth. So sort of, it's like taking an overall policy and then introducing carve-outs in it. Is that is that pretty much how this yeah, is sort of progressing? That's it. I mean, and I guess you can keep carving until you effectively only have the original policy 
in, in name and theory, it, it, it describes an intention. But if you carved out every sector, then, you know, it, it's, it's just pragmatism, which is fine. I guess, you know, uh, employers will raise an issue about certainty and business speaks a lot, talks a lot about wanting certainty from government. I mean, I take that with a little bit of a grain of salt because, you know, who's got certainty in this world? There, there are limits to how much certainty a government can provide. And, and we do also want them to sort of think on their feet, I guess. It's an interesting one too, isn't it? And that like, there are valid sort of reservations. And of course, there's a valid discussion about how much immigration is sustainable and targeting immigration policy to suit your goals and your needs as a country. You also have bad actors in, in this country who are simply racist or xenophobic and who use reasonable reservations about that as a smokescreen for that racism and, and xenophobia. And we have plenty yeah. of overseas evidence. And so, you know, there's a tension there. You want to have a reasoned debate, but by definition, you, you, kind of, you have to be careful about how you, how you have that debate. It, it complicates the debate, that's for sure. And it, it complicates the debate along uh, you know, the traditional left-right economic divide is slightly different to the to the sort of conservative liberal uh, cultural divide yeah. and I, I think it can make it problematic for both labor and national when they're looking at their base you know who who are they appealing to here um, because you'd say well there's a there's a liberal point of view that would be very much in favor of open migration you know because we should be welcoming and and, and, and uh, people should be free to travel around the world you know mm. it, it's quite quite a liberal sort of outlook as opposed to sort of no migrants shut it all down that's a conservative outlook but then economically it's not quite the same so yeah. you you know so you had the John Key government taking a very liberal attitude to immigration really using it as an economic lever and then Labour, who was economically to the left, saying, "Well, that doesn't work for the the, the the poorest people in New Zealand economically," but then gets into trouble with talking about shutting down borders and and um, you know on the cultural side, it does become quite a um, political minefield. That's it for today. I'm Emil Donovan. The detail is public interest journalism funded through New Zealand on air and produced by Newsroom for RNZ. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. Today's episode was engineered by Jeremy Ansell and produced by Sarah Robson and Bonnie Harrison. And thanks to Liam Dan. Matewa. Te